Digitize and Punish is a comprehensive study of the use of digital technology in American criminal justice. Brian Jefferson shows how the technology has expanded the wars on crime and drugs, enabling our current state of mass incarceration and further entrenching the nation's racialized policing and punishment. After examining how the criminal justice system conceptualized the benefits of computers to surveil criminalized populations, Jefferson focuses on New York City and Chicago to provide a grounded account of the deployment of digital computing in urban police departments. This conversation between Jefferson and University of Minnesota Press senior editor Peter Martin was recorded in July 2020. Hello, Brian. Hi, Peter. My name is Brian Jefferson, and I'm an associate professor of geography and geographic information science at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Yeah, and uh, my name is Peter Martin. I'm an acquisitions editor at the University of Minnesota Press uh, and worked with Brian uh, to publish his new book, Digitize and Punish. Um, Brian, I think maybe just to start things off uh, before we kind of get into the uh, the book itself or the argument of the book, um, you know, I know you have a kind of uh, sort of an interesting path um, to the project itself. I mean, first of all, you're a professor of geography, but um, you actually didn't train as a geographer, right? You were, uh, 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 did a PhD in political theory. Um, and this project actually wasn't based on that dissertation um, uh, research itself. Um, so tell me a little bit about the kind of the roots of the project um, and, and kind of how you came to it. Yeah, so my degree was, as you said, in political theory. And so I, I've always been really interested in the state and thinking about uh, state power. Yeah. My dissertation was on the NYPD and it was about the sort of a, the stop and frisk debate uh, in the early 2010s. Uh, and what I was looking at was sort of the way that activists were trying to get the stop and frisk policy and broader issues about police accountability and police misconduct, uh, how they were strategizing and try to change those things. Uh, so I was thinking about it mostly in terms of the politics and the sort of grassroots, but also professional activism that was mobilizing to try to get some of these policies changed. But then I just, um, out of you know sheer happenstance, ended up um, being a geographer which made me think a lot more about space and, and a lot more about the ways that policing constitutes and reproduces and, and sort of governs uh, and differentiates spaces and cities. Uh, so the project, it sort of, you could see there are little vestiges of, of the dissertation in it, especially when I turn toward more the activist uh, at the end. Um, but the bulk of it is, uh, I guess you'd say urban geography, and looking at the way that neighborhoods are uh, differentiated, um, but with a keen focus on on the government. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, your book is obviously looking at a, a range of technologies of, of law enforcement, um, everything from computers to ankle bracelets. But really, I mean, at the heart of your book, I think, is really the relationship between data, new technologies of, of kind of collecting data, of in instrumentalizing it, um, and as a way to, to kind of control space, right? And um, I guess promulgate what you call sort of r racial criminalization. Yeah, oh, definitely. You know, there's a lot of attention, rightfully so, of course, on, on cameras, 
um, and, and ankle bracelets. Uh, and I became really interested in sort of where all the information from these different technologies is deposited and centralized. Um, oftentimes they're called uh, data fusion centers. Um, but in, in doing the research for the book, I almost uh, got this impression of these data centers becoming almost like wardens for people's communities um, uh, because they right. had, yeah, yeah, they had access to all these different types of uh, data, which they could be locational data from bracelets. They could be video data from cameras. Um, they could be uh, criminal record data from, from um, being someone being booked and charged or, or from the courts. Um, so the data in the data center um, sort of, for me, emerged at the, at the center of all of these different technologies, which was something that I didn't really um, see coming into it, or, or but it just emerged through the research. And I got really interested in, in sort of how do these data centers uh, um, function and, and how do they extend the carceral state sort of out into uh, the street more. Brian, early in the book, um, you know, you obviously kind of give a, a short kind of longer history of the relationship between law enforcement and and the kind of rise of data kind of in the pre-computer age. Um, you obviously, I think, look at you know, J, yeah, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and the kind of rise of sort of modern database policing. But really, I mean, I think the book kind of... Um, it's really these sort of interesting parallel developments in the late 60s, early 70s between the rise of the mainframe or at least the kind of uh, adoption of the mainframe and, and computing in, larger, in the larger society, um, kind of parallel to these moments of urban unrest during the 60s, uh, the prosecution of the Black Panther movement. I mean, that's kind of a, a, an important sort of starting point for the book in some ways. Is that correct? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So in, in the 60s, uh, you know, the 60s, of course, are really almost like this romantic period that, that I've studied a lot um, from the side of civil rights unrest, uh, for the most part, and um, the Black Power movement. But in writing, reading for the book, you know, I had to read more about when computer science really establishes itself and then sort of the slow um, history of, of, of computers becoming um, affordable and accessible and, and spreading throughout society. So there's like this dual um, process that became really interesting to me where you were seeing much, you might say like today, like technological advancement on one hand um, and, and social unrest and, and, and um, you know, massive sort of um, uh, egregious forms of inequality on the other hand. Uh, and one of the things that uh, really interested me in trying to wrap my head around was sort of how you could have these two uh, contradictory processes going on. One that looks like, you know, a very brutal, um, you know, police suppression of, of political dissidents uh, uh, on one hand and then on the other hand, uh, scientific progress. And then sort of where do those two strands intersect? And I think um, uh, in, in looking at something like the LEAA, Lyndon Johnson, law enforcement, you know, you get those two strands, they, they, they intersect and you see that the police are starting to adopt, you know, the cutting edge technologies of the day. And I think the thrust of the book is what did they adopt the technologies for um, in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s? And if they're still using those very same technologies today in, in, in similar ways and extending on the way that they use the technology. To what extent does that reproduce or perpetuate the war on crime and the war on drugs, which you know 
we might tend to think is over. Um, but but my argument is it's just sort of been normalized and, and made banal through these sort of automated technologies. Yeah, I mean, the book really trapped I me. Mean, I think there's definitely these sort of fascinating kind of points where the adoption of, of computers and data really get accelerated. Part of that, I think you, you know, you refer to the war on drugs, but the sort of the, the militarization of the police force in some ways, right? And we see that both, uh, you know, with the war on drugs, we also see that kind of in the post 9-11 era. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, you know, in the early 90s with the sort of broken windows policy of, of New York, right? And, and I know also like your book, obviously is looking at this sort of broad national development of these technologies and adoption of them. But, but New York and Chicago are really the two focuses of it. And of course, New York really with the broken windows policy was kind of the most, or at least maybe the most celebrated application of, of data in some ways. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in specific New York, um, their Comstat system, uh, which comes online in 1994, uh, and it's been depicted in The Wire, I think. It, uh, the, the Wire actually did a really interesting job of depicting it, but their ComStat system, um, which is short for Compare Statistics or Computer Statistics, depending on who you ask, um, but it was a system in which the NYPD wanted to hold their commanding and rank-and-file officers more accountable for their performance, i.e. the arrest rate, and also... Uh, the crime rate. Uh, and so they were tracking officer performance, you know, through databases. And they were also using um, digital maps to to track where crimes were happening. And I think it seems sort of like a, a boring, bureaucratic, administrative uh, application of technology. Um, but what it did is it, you know, created these um, quantified quota systems for police to make arrests and, and, you know, to intervene in people's um, everyday lives. And as the technology became more sophisticated, you know, their behavior and their performance was tracked in, in more sophisticated ways. Um, so New York City was, as you know, the crime rate drops um, going into the late 90s. So they were seen as sort of a model of how to use technology um, to drop uh, the crime rate. Now, of course, there are a million different factors that could lead to that crime uh, rate dropping, especially uh, the demographic changes, the different uh, classes and wealthier people coming in uh, to the city. But nonetheless, they were seen as sort of the, the exemplar of how to use technology for policing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Brian, you have these parallel case studies that, um, you know, New York and Chicago, and I'm sort of, you know, how, how did Chicago's experience, I mean, I guess, sort of mirror New York's or, I mean, were they sort of following New York's lead? Um, and I'm, I'm sort of just curious how the kind of your selection of case studies worked out. Yeah, well, it's funny. They were very, they were similar in a lot of ways and different in a lot of ways. Um, Chicago, in some ways, was ahead of uh, New York. Illinois was one of the first states and Chicago uh, used um, actuarial tables um, in the early 1900s. Uh, and um, Bernard Harcourt, he writes a book uh, against profiling, uh, which does a great long history, um, it, you know, going back to the early 20th century of, of using um, probability tables to try to predict uh, which juveniles would relapse. So, and, and that's in Chicago before New York. And then Chicago 
also was using digital mapping, um, I found in, in the late 80s, uh, not on a department-wide scale, but they were using it for the war on gangs. During the 80s uh, and the early 90s, from the mayor's standpoint, the adoption of technology uh, uh, for the police was used in very explicit martial uh, terms. It was very explicitly done to give the police an edge in what was seen or often talked about as a, as a war, um, as a literal war in some cases from some public officials. Um, in New York, it's a little bit different. It's adopted more under the, the idea of applying um, sort of like private sector um, streamlining and efficient ways of management or modern management theory, applying that to the police department to make it more efficient uh, and, and um, to make it, you know, just operate smoothly and, and to be able to cut out some of the redundancy, bureaucratic redundancies. So they're very different in that sense and sort of the contingent circumstances in which um, technologies were first uh, rolled out and, and really promoted by public officials. But what became very clear that was similar between the two was the relation to the IT sector and the relation to um, uh, what would eventually we would come to call data scientists. Uh, and yeah. so a lot of the book sort of in the course of studying it, it that relationship became, I think, a focal point between, uh, you know, how did um, IT companies, large and small, um, link up with urban police and criminal justice uh, agencies. So that sort of became one of the core pillars of the book. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, obviously the role of, of capitalism, right, and uh, the role of these sort of technology companies as sort of developing um, a, a market, right, uh, for these technologies. And, and obviously there's maybe a chicken or, you know, it's, which one's the chicken, which one is the egg, right, in terms of, you know, were, were these state agencies looking to uh, develop new tools? Were these companies coming to the, the government and pitching them these sort of flashy new technologies as a way to kind of further manage, uh, the, you know, their law enforcement efforts. Um, but there's a long history of that. And I think one, I remember one part of the book is that you people often cast prisons as this place where uh, the sort of uh, for-profit part of the economy has sort of developed these businesses that, are, you know, only cause more incarceration in a way, right? Um, but you kind of make this argument that, that we should also look at these data companies as well, right? As uh, as a, a sort of form of capital that is really problematic. Yeah, definitely. So I, the book in, in many ways was an attempt to try to apply uh, what was discovered by people like Angela Y. Davis and Ruthie Gilmore in terms of the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Uh, and I think they created sort of a model, yeah, for looking at um, criminal justice and, and looking at racial criminalization from a little more of a political economic standpoint and, and looking at the different corporations that are involved and then starting to think about how those corporations try to actively influence criminal justice policy, right? And because they have a rational economic interest right. in criminal justice laws being harsher. Yeah. So the book was, it, it, in my mind, it, it was um, the task was, well, how can I take this model and explore uh, a different relationship and that being IT companies. And I think when I started uh, uh, four years ago or so, you know, I think that a lot of people, and I think 
to see uh, journalists and now scholars and definitely activists are, are seeing these connections. One of the goals with the book was to really draw the connections between, okay, there's also, as like you say, a sort of for-profit niche market um, for surveillance. And, you know, that could be for uh, financial headquarters in the city, um, which people like Stephen Graham, I think, have written really greatly about uh, this sort of uh, fortified uh, surveillance urban space, but I wanted to look at these neglected and marginalized communities and, and see how IT companies had, had found profit frontiers uh, in these communities as well. Yeah, because we often think of downtowns, right, as being these sort of heavily surveilled spaces with cameras and various forms of kind of, you know, surveillance. But yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about how these technologies expand out into the neighborhoods. Can you sort of paint a picture of the of the landscape of a urban neighborhood um, of, of people of color and and how the, just the range of technologies that are sort of following them on any given day? Yeah, I, and I don't think it's um, the picture would look as coherent and clear as if we looked at a you know a downtown wealthy uh, city center. I don't know that the, the digital architecture or infrastructure um, for surveilling these marginalized communities is, uh, is as thick um, and as well planned out. I, I think it, it sort of arises in a more sort of contingent way. Um, but And one of the sort of fears of the book is that it will become more coherent and thicker. Yeah. But in these communities, you have, it, it's a hodgepodge of, of technology. So you will have your cameras, your CCTV cameras. Yeah. Um, in public housing sometimes yeah, yeah. Uh, and that and that's an important thing that I, I tried to stress that of course society surveillance society affects all people but one of the things is yeah who what you know neighborhoods or what um housing areas have uh, cameras inside the housing unit so that's one um the electronic ankle bracelets of course yeah. um and those have been written about um, by like James Kilgore does a great job of that. Um, and then you have the uh, mobile command centers, uh, like in the case of New York City, where they had these retrofitted buses that essentially uh, were criminal processing um, vehicles where people could get booked right on the street. The patrol car, one of the things that I argue in the book is as the, the squad car gets, you know, linked into uh, the criminal database and in some cases the mobile phones that patrol officers have have video feeds uh, we could think of the patrol car or the squad car as almost like a mini mobile command center nice. that's roving about and then you have all of the different software for analyzing and predicting who's going to commit crime and this could be um, uh, predicting individuals or it could be predicting areas of the community. But then, you know, it goes on and on. And, and, and that sort of it was a challenge to, to figure out how to how to manage all of this for the book. But I look in New York City and there's like the fiber optic cabling that, you know, the NYPD had its own proprietary uh, system or network that connects uh, all of the public housing units uh, to police precincts and police headquarters. Um, so you have that and it goes on and on. Uh, and and what, what you see is just like a tremendous sort of investment um, on behalf of the cities, also in New York, uh, data storage that they have in the Verizon towers, right? So they need server space, they need cooling equipment, um, uh, not to mention the shot detectors, shot spotters, right. uh, 
Um, so there's just all of these different technologies. And, and if you're a small or, or a large tech company, you're, of course, going to want to, uh, to sell your product. And um, they'll always be pitching new ideas to police departments to, to expand the their arsenal, their digital arsenal. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think a great line of your book, because I think there's always been this sort of political consensus around the adoption of new technology in law enforcement, right? I think there's a line, maybe in the introduction or maybe the first chapter that you talk about, you know, for, for the political right, it sort of allows them to be, you know, distant and, and, and separated from these communities that they find problematic. And for the left, it, it allows this sort of a scientific rationalism, right, that they buy into, right? I mean, is that, I don't know if that's a, maybe a slightly um, distilled way of putting it, but there's been a consensus for a long time around these technologies, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I try to stress. I, I mean, I start sort of with Lyndon Johnson's administration as, as one of the key turning points in the, the uh, convergence between uh, computer technology and, and criminal justice. The very sort of typical story of liberal left-leaning faith in technocracy um, and in the idea that you can fight crime in this very scientific, neutral way. And we also even see this in the Obama administration where there's a famous task force study that the administration does um, on the future of police. Again, it's, you know, it's, it's really techno, technocratic, a really sort of uh, technophile approach to solving the problems of racism. So I think it's really important um, to show that this is not, you know, simply a story of you know, the evil, evil segregationists or the, you know, evil um, anti-crime, anti-drug uh, coalitions in, you know, in the 80s of, of trying to exert control over these disenfranchised and marginalized people. It's also, you know, a story of um, having a faith in technical solutions and, and scientific solutions to social problems. And also, you know, uh, and trying to enjoin us to think a little bit more about who designs the software or the technology and what is their main interest and how does that position them vis-a-vis the war on crime or the war on drugs. So I definitely wanted to stress that it's not this binary thing where it's the conservatives, you know, running roughshod over the liberals. This is a story that is really propelled in many cases by um, liberal technocrats. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, I know I can tell re- revisiting your book that you're a fan of science fiction. You're also, I think, very careful. I think to maybe avoid a sort of painting too kind of dystopian of a picture. Although you know, at times it does feel pretty dystopian, right? I mean, you're, you're sort of careful about that. Yeah. Do, I mean, do you wrestle with, I guess, sort of uh, these questions? I guess of sort of technological determinism and uh, you know, making sure that you're sort of creating a genealogy of, of of these new technologies but 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 also i think being very clear about the the politics and the ideas of the people who were using them in other words right i mean uh but but did you did you find that challenging at any point where you know you didn't want to give the technology too much agency um even even while you're trying to kind of create this sort of larger web of new developments and new adoption and you know just just the whole history of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, you are probably one of the people who helped me uh, with uh, the technological determinism and looking at some of the earlier drafts. And it was definitely something that um, everyone who, who read the earlier drafts uh, pointed out. 
you know, I think what happens is, especially when, when you're reading these, these uh, technocratic and documents and you're reading uh, a lot of um, advertisements from companies for surveillance cameras or for whatever crime prediction software, um, it's almost easy to reproduce their uh, sort of pitch, which is this technology is, you know, all powerful and, um, you know, it can reduce crime by X percent, you know, in Y amount of days. So, you know, when when you're reading these type of documents for, for years at a time, I think you, uh, the author almost um, unconsciously picks up uh, uh, some of the, the ways of seeing and talking about technology that the companies and, and that the government uh, exemplify. But I, I do think in, in many ways, especially in the 80s and 90s, almost like a trove of, of speculative fiction um, in, in talking about a lot of the issues that we're talking about in the mainstream today. I, I find a lot of science fiction to be really, uh, really ahead of its time uh, in talking about uh, issues, especially about the relationship between science and society. And one of the things I, I found I find interesting in a lot of sci-fi is you can tell there's a lot of amount of research done on actually existing technologies and technology that are on the horizon. I think uh, that sort of research, um, which is, you know, just like academic research, I think makes for a, a strong foundation in a lot of speculative fiction. But, uh, you know, the, the, the sci-fi and the sort of scientific dystopian genre, I think, is more of it's a warning. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I've been reading more recently about our surveillance in China and, and doing my research for my book, A Great Fear is that, you know, we might be closer than we think to that type of system, especially if you look at like Uyghur containment. So yeah. I definitely wanted to raise alarms with the book. Um, but like you say, there's always this balance of not having this completely deterministic view. I know, I, I know you, you mentioned this briefly in the book, but I, it sounds like the, you know, your archives, so to speak, uh, the, the materials that you put together, um, you know, that, that some of it really came from, how do I put it, unnamed activists, people who have sort of uncovered, uh, I don't know how much you can talk about that, um, and maybe I'm, hopefully I'm not misrepresenting it, but, you, you know, you were able, some of the material in the book, you were able to kind of obtain from maybe sources that weren't so public, is that correct? Well, there were government sources, yeah. um, which uh, a lot of them were just available online. You can go yeah. to, you know, Chicago Police, that ILGov or, or whatever it is, or New York. Now, a lot of those materials are being taken down in the last year or so, and and I and I noticed that. Um, but you know, and then there are a lot of, of course, um, activist organizations. I think were super helpful in doing their own studies, um, oftentimes in collaborations with academics. Uh, so, so those were great sources. And then I, I had police accountability activists as, as sources. So it takes on sort of a, a myriad different uh, sources of information. One of the ironies is a lot of them were from the government. They were from the state. You know, it was just a matter of me trying to interpret their objectives and then a lot of their arguments from, from a different perspective than, of course, the police or the criminal justice system would. Yeah, where I, I could imagine maybe some of the corporate, you know, trying to get inside some of the corporate, you know, just bodies of information was probably a little bit more complicated. Yeah, well, that was, but I would say the data scientists that I interviewed were more than happy to talk about how brilliant they were. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can and imagine. Their, right? And their technology. <laughs> yeah. 
So they were some of the, um, you know, some of the best, especially right around um, after Ferguson and, and that sort of wave of, of debates and discussions uh, and, and protesting. Um, you know, what I found back then, a lot of them were saying, well, our technology is the anti antidote uh, to, to something like um, Michael Brown's murder. Right. Um, now, I think their tune has changed a lot now because what's happened in the last five years or so, just the, the public uh, sphere, um, again, uh, journalists, uh, news outlets, activists are starting, everyone is, is really starting to put this technology under a microscope. And you're starting to see, I think, a lot of uh, the data scientists retreat or, or, or think a little more critically about the relation between their technology and, and the social consequences. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the past several months, of course, here in Minneapolis, as you know, um, have been, or last couple, couple of months, I should say, I don't know, time, I'm losing a sense of time now in the pandemic, but, um, you know, the, the yeah. George Floyd's murder and the aftermath of that was um, obviously puts, you know, some of the issues of your book in, in kind of high relief. Um, for me, it was sort of fascinating to kind of revisit the days following, I mean, of course, George Floyd's murder itself and the way it was captured on and, and distributed by phone. And of course, your book is really looking at the sort of top down, the, the role of technology and law enforcement. And, and, and of course, there's this sort of fascinating bottom up response to that and the way in which the kind of counter surveillance program now going on with, with, you know, of the police and of their actions. And of course, you know, George Floyd's murder is just kind of the latest of that. Um, and, and the video that, frankly, people, you know, regardless of people's political stripe, pretty much everyone, you know, c can see that that it was, you know, horribly unjust and tragic. I mean, are you, uh, the, the sort of counter, you know, the sort of the way in which technology now is almost a, uh, the kind of resistance against, you know, uh, the over-policing of America sort of is, a, is kind of a fascinating mirror image in some ways, right? And it's not a focus of the book per se, but is 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 that something that that you know you've been exploring? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I mean the the conclusion is just about uh, the sort of uh, use of technology to uh, or uh, you know turning it against the the technology creep of uh, you know the the digital uh, sort of carceral state. Um, and the conclusion is actually titled uh, "Viral Ab Abolition." Right. And that that yeah that goes back to um, my grad school research um, with grassroots activists and um, this would have been the early 2010s uh, when a lot of people were really starting to put footage of of, of police misconduct and brutality onto YouTube. Um, one of the groups I worked with they had this entire well organized counter surveillance strategy where they had squadrons, they had teams of, of people who would go out um, with cameras or with their phones, and they would just record police civilian encounters, whether, you know, completely benign. And then they would store the video footage. And if anything happened, you know, that ran afoul of law, they, they would post it. And um, so there was that. There's in um, Chicago, there's the police misconduct, uh, the Citizen Data Project, yeah. which uh, is the largest, or at least when I was studying it, yeah, so um, database of police misconduct in the country. Uh, so the definitely the end looks at the bottom up. Um, if I could go back, I think I probably would have more consistently throughout the entire uh, book looked at the bottom up. But the, the 
the conclusion definitely looks at it and it, it just was from my observation I never thought I don't think anyone thought that the uh, protests would explode on like a global scale this, this past summer like they did that was completely uh, caught me off guard um, and I think most people uh, but I think it was almost a confirmation of what I saw on a much smaller scale and it reinforces the fact that technology is in many ways like a tool you know just like a hammer is a tool and can use it for multiple things, destruction or building. Yeah. Um, it, it just matters sort of who's wielding it. Yeah. And, and, and sort of what are the objectives that are set forth? Um, so, you know, I, I do think the, the silver lining in this summer of protests is, is to see um, just the, the unimaginable potential and power that there is in people using the network, using the internet, um, using images um, um, to organize uh, against uh, government overreach. I, I mean, I was talking to some younger uh, high school kids in, uh, earlier this summer and was saying, well, why do you guys think the protests were, were so um, grand in scale? And they said, we were sitting at home during the pandemic and we just saw these issues, uh, these, um, these images, right, of, of um, injustice. And we decided to do something because, you know, they were sitting in front of computers and that sort of and, and seeing these images over yeah. and over and I think sparked a, a, a global moment. Yeah. Yeah. Here in Minneapolis with the, you know, in the aftermath of three or four days of, of really, um, you know, when when the protests turned turned pretty um you know, violent, or there were certain elements that, that, that unfortunately, you know, burned a lot of buildings. Um, it was fascinating mm -hmm. to kind of revisit that moment um, through the prism of your book, because, you know, they've arrested a couple people um, based on, you know, their social media accounts. Um, and these are people who, uh, you know, mm -hmm. weren't, weren't, you know, peacefully protesting. I mean, they, they were um, doing that, but, but it was fascinating. And there's also the, the story of the, 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 the federal drone that was observing <laughs> the, uh, the protests, but, but yeah. it really makes you, I mean, the, you know, it kind of rose to the surface, the, the, the way in which a whole range of people um, were probably being surveilled. Do you see, I mean, you know, we're in this fascinating moment where how we're going to transform policing, right? And places like Minneapolis are taking this objective really seriously, although it's at a very, very early stage, uh, you know, and, and part of that, you know, means potentially less policemen, like less, less people policing the city. Um, mm -hmm. I know that's something that's going on in Minneapolis. They want to change the charter um, to quite literally, mm -hmm. you know, there's like a, you know, a mandated threshold in terms of the amount of people per capita on the police force, and they want to get rid of that. But, you know, is there a do you see any concerns that, uh, you know, there's going to be more and more sort of investments in technological fixes? Actually, my former advisor, Alex Vitale, his book, End of Policing, was about essentially defunding police and looking at Minneapolis when, when I first saw that that was in the public uh, debate. It was, it was pretty surprising from the outside looking in. Um, that, that was one of the... Um, of course, solutions that that's being proposed. Um, and so I do think, you know, in terms of police reform, there will be sort of more pressure to reallocate um, public funding. Uh, you know, you can call it defunding the police or you can call it reallocating, you know, public revenue to, to 
more social services. Um, but whatever it is, I do think that it's more than likely that um, there will be an element of sort of relying on technology, even for social service systems, um, to deliver them more efficiently and in a more streamlined fashion. Uh, but I think one of the maybe more a better a good thing that you see now i think is that more people are looking very critically and, and scrutinizing uh the these new technologies that are being rolled out so of course you see this with contact tracing right. um and, and and trying to yeah contain yeah the pandemic so i do think there will be more technology uh and that will be sort of um one of the ways that people will go about trying to reform and perhaps downscale policing. Um, but at the same time, I do think the, the public is, is much more aware and interested in looking at how these technologies are rolling out and, and what sort of um, unintended consequences they might yeah. bring. And, and that's a lot different than my book because when I, when I was researching, especially stuff in the 90s um, and even early 2000s, post 9-11, uh, the public, we weren't really privy to, I think, the adoptions of these sort of complex um, infrastructures. Uh, and it's, it's taken, you know, almost two decades, if not more, for, the, for us to catch up. Um, but I think we have. Uh, so I think the debate will, um, is guaranteed to continue. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the inquiring book editor always wants to know, I mean, what's, what's next for you? I mean, oh, well, yeah, I, I, I'm going to look at the relationship between IT sectors, uh, the IT sector and the state, yeah. uh, but on, I think on a, on a broader scale um, and more generally, um, because that was sort of on, uh, on the urban scale, uh, you know, something that just really came out of the book, like understanding this relationship. And, and one of the things that the book sort of pivoted mid writing uh, where I decided this should be more of a historical story uh, where I went in, you know, a theory degree you know, <laughs> yeah. and everything was all, you know, very abstract. But uh, yeah, but the, the adage that uh, history is, is, well, I guess we could say change into history is, is stranger than theory um, because the sort of little anecdotes about deals between New York City and um, IBM or the Verizon uh, building in New York City and, and the NYPD, uh, these became really, uh, for me, uh, digging up these anecdotes and these stories, uh, I think was gave me the most sense of discovery and, and saying something that hadn't been, um, um, or finding things that haven't been really studied before. Um, so I'd like to scale up and, and to think more broadly um, that it's not, I mean, a lot of it's not bashing the IT sector, yeah. but the interesting thing for book one is, you know, the IT sector, at least the, the stereotype of Silicon Valley is multiculturalism and libertarianism. Right. Uh, so I think book one, book one problematized the uh, multiculturalism part. So book two will problematize the uh, libertarianism <laughs> <laughs> so by looking at how the state has helped actually propel the growth of the IT sector and how the IT sector propels, propels the growth of yeah yeah or or does it does it propel the maybe dismantling of parts of the state too i don't know if that makes sense is it is it a, yeah, you know, I yeah. Mean, it's it's sort of the privatization of of previously kind of you know state services and that kind of thing oh yeah yeah and yeah and opening up new new ways of resistance um to what we were saying earlier yeah
That's exciting. Well, is there anything else you want to just sort of say about your book? I'll, I'll just say it. I'm really pleased to have been able to work on it. The book is uh, Digitize and Punish uh, Racial Criminalization in the Digital Age. And it's looking just at the history. I try to take more of a historical approach, um, but just looking at the history between computers and the criminal justice system, you know, over a longer, I think, time period um, than is usually uh, looked at. So, you know, these are definitely debates. And I, I'd like to think of the book as almost a toolkit, more of a, giving these historical moments and, and, and the precedents that have gotten us up here uh, to this to this point. So if you are interested in questions of surveillance of the state and especially racial inequality, I, I hope you'll find something useful in it. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Brian. And uh, again, it's a great book. Thanks a lot.